If you have been following along with us in Jonah, or if you've ever read Jonah, um, by the time you get to chapter 3, you have this impatience for someone to finally act rightly. Um, All we've seen so far is a guy who is so set in his hatred for other people and in his disobedience to God that he hears God's audible voice runs from it. Even a hurricane can't wake him up. He's in the belly of a whale that God sent to save him because of his sin. And all he's talking about is how great he is and how bad all of the unbelievers of the world are. And uh, there's this, oh my gosh, is anyone going to act rightly? Well, today in Jonah 3, we're going to see someone act with a soft, repentant heart when they hear God's word. But surprise, surprise, it's not Jonah. Uh, It's actually a city full of some of the most evil people who had ever lived, the Ninevites. So let's, uh, let's uh, open up to Jonah 3, and we'll, we'll read this surprising turn in the story and hopefully learn a little bit from it. Here we go, Jonah 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published to Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we, we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for this passage, and just particularly as we have uh, just heard about um, Thailand and the darkness there, but this passage again confirms to us that when you are behind your word, Lord, mighty things can happen. So uh, we do pray you'd help us to humbly uh, hear what this passage has to say, to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first time I met Mark, I don't think anyone here is named Mark, but it's not you, okay? But first time I met Mark, the rainbow pin on his shirt made me know that it would be a little challenging to minister to him. I met Mark at Starbucks, and uh, in a brief conversation, I found out that he was a very highly secular man, very committed to his homosexual lifestyle. Uh, and we, uh, we got to talking, he found out that I was a pastor at Southern Baptist Church, and almost in a public place blessed me out but he he took breath and uh we've been okay but it's been weird since we we go there a lot together so anyways um now 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 let me introduce you to a a friend uh, a fictional friend of mine we'll just call her katie again it's not you okay fictional young adult christian named katie katie was raised in a christian home she's having trouble paying attention to these jonah lessons because she memorized the book of jonah has had it taught to her multiple times through her life uh she uh she cannot remember. She literally cannot number the amount of sermons she's heard. She's pleasant, polite. She's a big fan of conservative views, Christian values. 
and she's even taken up scripture doodling. If you know what that is, and I won't explain it to you. <laughs> all right. Now let's say I have some some ministry plans. All right, uh, for both Mark and for Katie. All right, and I wanna I wanna take each of these people where they are, and I wanna bring them one step closer to Jesus, which is what we talked about in Connect. Okay, uh, and I want I wanna minister to them. All right. So here's my plan, and I, and I want you guys to think in your head. This is a good plan or a bad plan, all right? So here's my plan for Mark. And I'm not saying I would ever do this, okay? Here's my plan for Mark. I walk up to Mark. Don't even say hello. I look him straight in the face and I say, Mark, if you don't repent, your homosexuality is going to send you straight to hell. And I drop a gospel track on the, on the table and I walk out, okay? That's my plan for Mark. Here's my plan for Katie, okay? Katie is going to get an all-expenses-paid trip to the next National Gospel Coalition Conference, Okay? For four days, all right, she's going to get to hear the all-star team of Christian preachers just bring it, okay? We've got Piper, Keller, to be all those guys, all right, all week. She's going to go to breakout sessions. She's going to have fellowship. She's going to come back, and she's going to share with us what she learned, all right? Here's my question. If you had to bet, which I'm not saying is okay, if you had to bet, all right, on, uh, on who is more likely to respond in a God-honoring way to my ministry plans, Who's your money on? Unless you're a contrarian, I bet your money is on Katie. I mean, Mark is far from God, and dangling, that is a terrible plan to minister to him, right? Like, shouldn't you get to know him first before you say that? And, and Katie, I mean, she's already Christian, she has the Holy Spirit, and she's going to go hear Piper and Keller for a week. Surely, like, surely, like, who can listen to Piper and Keller and not be affected, right? Well, according to Jonah 3, if you bet on Katie, you might lose your money. Jonah 3 shows us something that is at once encouraging and shockingly convicting, that sometimes the people furthest from God respond in ways to God that should shame us who are near to him. Sometimes five words from God's mouth can turn a pagan city upside down, but an entire Bible can be yawned at and neglected by a church that's had it for thousands of years. So we'll see uh, God's mercy widened to those who are farthest from him, and we'll try to learn from their response. So look, first, the first thing we see in Jonah is that God's mercy is widened. It's widened first to Jonah yet again, and then to the Ninevites. So just notice uh, in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time, and Jonah listens. Just notice here in verse 3. Uh, he might be listening to God, but he's not, he's not on God's team yet, okay? We'll, we'll learn next week that uh, after he preaches and Nineveh repents, Jonah gets mad at God and tells him how terrible it is that God is merciful. So Jonah's going, but he's kind of grumbling in his going, all right? He's like the kid who's dragged on a mission trip by his parents. Um, but just notice here, after everything we've seen so far, after Jonah's hard-headedness, after all his unrepentance, after everything he's done, God is still merciful to him. God is still inviting Jonah into the story of his love. And as we'll see here in a second, God is going to mightily use Jonah. So if you've ever thought maybe you've sinned too much for God to use you, my encouragement to you would be to look at Jonah. God used Jonah. He continued with Jonah in the middle of his unrepentance. But uh, the main characters in this book, or in this chapter, are the Ninevites. Uh, look at 
the second half of verse 3, it says, now, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And I'm going to do something I don't, don't normally do, but do you guys see the number, the numbers on that verse? The little su- superscript, the little numbers that are high up? Do you all see those? All right, if you have an ESV, uh, it'll say Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, and there'll be a little five right above the city. If you don't see it, it's okay, not a big deal. But uh, the translators of the New Testament uh, who, who compiled the ESV, whenever there's a question in translation, whenever there's like, we're not completely 100% sure what this means, they'll give you a little superscript, and then you can go to the bottom of the page in the tiny little writing that no one ever reads, okay? Look up number five, and what you'll probably see here is it says Hebrew, a great city to God, okay? So what that means, all that being said, in the original language, here's how verse, the end of verse three reads. Now Nineveh was a great city to God, three days' journey in length. And in the context of this book, where God's mercy comes so powerfully through such a bad person to these people, uh, I think that this idea of of, of Nineveh being a great city to God is not about Nineveh's size, but about how important it is to God. It's not that Nineveh is a big place. It's that it's got a big place in God's heart. All right? And you might be like, oh, well, of course, of course, Leland, God loves the cities of the world, right? Duh. Uh, But if you um, know anything about Nineveh, this might be a little surprising. Uh, If you flip ahead uh, about four or five pages in your Bible, you get to the book of Nahum. Okay? And Nahum is another book that's concerned with Nineveh. So literally, it's it's Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Okay? Um, And Nahum's about uh, Nineveh, but it's about God's judgment coming to Nineveh. I'll just read you a few verses that describe Nineveh in this book. Uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Nineveh is a uh, lion's den. It's a lion's den, the feeding place of young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. So what are the Ninevites like? They're like savage lions that kill people to provide for their children. Encouraging, okay? 3-1, okay? Nineveh is the bloody city. It is the city of lies and plunder. There is no end to its prey. Nineveh sheds blood. They're murderers. Nineveh lies. Nineveh steals. Nineveh has prey, the oppressed, the fatherless. Gets even worse. Verse 4. All right. Nineveh does everything they do for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Nineveh is a prostitute. Finally, the very end of the book, uh, 319. Nahum asks a question. Very end. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Nineveh is unceasingly evil, and their evil affects all the nations of the earth. So let's go back to Jonah, all right? Let's just pretend this book was written in 1940, which if you slept through all your history classes, 1940 was the year where Nazi Germany had conquered the entire continent of Europe. And uh, Hitler and his boys were about to start planning the Holocaust, which, again, I really hope you know what this is, but a study just came out where uh, most millennials do not know what the Holocaust was, but it was the systematic murder of between 6 and 8 million Jewish people by the Nazis, okay? Please go look that up if you don't know what that is, all right? Uh, So, anyways, 1940, okay? Hitler has conquered Europe. He and his buddies are hanging out in Berlin, planning the Holocaust and enjoying their conquering, okay? Let's pretend Jonah was written in 1940. And we get to Jonah 3, and it reads, Now Berlin, the capital city of Germany, right, where Hitler hung out, okay, Berlin, 
was a great city to God. A little more surprising? That God cares about a place like Berlin in 1940? That his mercy extends to those kinds of people that he longs for them? So, uh, just two things before we move on. If God can use Jonah in such an incredible work as we see here in the middle of Jonah's sins, he can use you. If you're at work and you're thinking, man, I was such a butthead yesterday, there is no way I can represent Jesus right now. Guys, that is a lie from the pit of hell, right? God uses sinful people. All of his people are sinners. They're all weak. We're all weak. God can use you wherever you're at. Man, if you're coming out of us, if, if, you, if you've been a Christian for one month and the lifestyle you just left is ridiculous and everybody around you knows it, God can use you right where you're at. You've been a Christian for 15 years and you are still struggling with the same old stuff. You've experienced no victory. God can still use you. He's still merciful to you. He, if you have any doubts, just see what happens next. He uses Jonah. Second, just here, uh, here afresh, First uh, Timothy 2. God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's heart is for every person to come to know Jesus and to experience salvation. There is no room in the Christian life for limiting God's mercy. There's no room for saying it doesn't go to the liberal culture warriors who would love to destroy the church. His mercy extends there, right? There's no room for saying, oh, not the sexual abusers, not the ISIS terrorists, right? Not the, not the guy who really makes me angry, right? The person who's hurt me. God's mercy extends to all. As Christian, we should embrace that. As you're, as you're living life, as you're running into guys with rainbow pins, people that are different than you, that are strange, that annoy you, embrace this for them, that God's mercy extends to them. And what happens next is a perfect example of God's mercy extending to the worst Look at, verse, uh, look at verse 4, okay? Uh, Nineveh was a great city, three days in length. You could travel for three days and not get to the end of it. Jonah, in verse 4, begins to go into the city. He just goes a day in, just gets about, you know, third of the way through. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Talk about a good sermon right there, right? You know, in Hebrew, uh, it's only five words. This is the shortest sermon ever recorded in the Bible. Five words in a minor prophet. Now, guys, if you've ever read the minor prophets, I just encourage you. Isaiah is 65 chapters, okay? That's Isaiah's sermon, 65 chapters, okay? And uh, Jonah uh, gives the people of Nineveh five words. And notice what's missing from these words. There's nothing about God. There's nothing about God's mercy. There's nothing about how they can avoid uh, destruction. It's just... In 40 days, this place is going to blow up. You can, almost, you can almost feel Jonah being excited about this, right? You can almost sense his pleasure in announcing this terrible news, right? It's God's word, though. It is true. And uh, after this five-word sermon, in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They respond in faith. They trust that these words coming from this, you know, hateful person, right, are actually true. That if they don't repent, that their city will be destroyed in 40 days. And they don't just believe God's word, they respond to it. 
They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Uh, fasting in sackcloth, so sackcloth was this, this itchy burlap sack. Have you ever done like a three-legged race? Something like that, okay? Imagine wearing that stuff. It's really itchy. It's miserable. Um, fasting would be going without food, all right? And the idea here, the Ninevites were physically making themselves miserable to show God how sorrowful they were for their sins. Does that make sense? They were demonstrating outwardly what was going on in their hearts. They were grieving uh, for their sins and calling out for God to be merciful. So again, uh, just five-word sermon, a whole city turned upside down. And this, uh, this upside-downness is, uh, is, is, is almost comically rendered in verses 6 through 9. The word reach, reaches the king of Nineveh. And he rose from his throne, removes his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. So uh, kings in the ancient world were godlike. They were uh, regarded as, if not God or a god, then something, the closest thing. They sat up on giant thrones. They, literally, literally, if I was a king, okay, in the ancient day, and we were talking, right, I'd be like 10 feet high on my giant throne, looking down on all of you about how much greater I am than you. Dressed in fine clothes, they're the most exalted people in the nation. Um, and, we, and we get a little bit of this in our culture. Uh, I'll just, this is, a, this is such an easy example, I, I can't stay away from it, okay? Have you guys ever noticed about Donald Trump, okay, that he has never publicly, at least in my knowledge, admitted he was wrong, right? Uh, okay, whatever you think about Trump, okay, uh, this is something easy to criticize about him. And, and really, it's not just him, but every, just look back on press conferences in history. Presidents don't admit they're wrong. All right, you, ever, you ever remember when a president apologized for something he did or said or a policy of his, right? Always posturing, always shit blame shifting, like keeping the upper hand. I'm in charge here. I got this. Just imagine one day, just imagine you're on your, you're on your news feed. You're flipping through your, your Apple news feed on your iPhone or whatever you got, okay? And you get to this article, and it says, Donald Trump weeps and apologizes in public. And you're like, okay, wait, it's not the Babylon Bee, okay? <laughs> it's not the Onion, all right? This is a real news article, okay? And you click on it, you're, you're reading it, you know? And you're like, I don't believe this. And they say, here's the video clip, okay? And you click on the video clip, and it's a White House press conference, all right? And Trump is there, and someone asks him a question about, I don't know, Stormy Daniels or something, all right? And he just pauses for a second. And he looks down, and he just starts uncontrollably weeping. And he starts telling his wife and the American people about how sorry he is. Yes, that, that'd be great, okay? But it would be astounding, right? You, for once, the news would have nothing to say about him. They wouldn't know what to say, right? It'd be crazy. And yet, this pagan king hears five words from the mouth of God, spoken through an angry prophet. And that is exactly what he does. He humbles himself publicly to the dust. Just five words, none of them nice. And he humbles himself. And he actually commends this repentance to the whole city. This is where it gets kind of funny. Uh, he issued a proclamation. He says, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. This is funny because animals don't repent, right? Having your dog fast for you is not going to gain you any favor with God. They don't, they don't have sinful natures. They don't have sins to repent of, right? And the pagan king, in his ignorance, doesn't, doesn't know this. But you see the heart, right? The heart is right. Every single living thing in this city is going to call out to God. That's how serious I am about this. 
from the king to the cattle, right? Everybody is covered in sackcloth. Let me, uh, let me try to summarize um, Jonah 3 and what might be uh, kind of a joke, maybe a joke here, okay? Uh, you, guys, you guys have heard jokes to start with, you know, two guys walking to a bar and there's like this stupid punchline, okay? All right, here's, a, here's Jonah 3 in a joke form, okay? Missionary walks into North Korean dictator's palace and starts to proclaim that God is going to judge him for his tyranny. And dictator publicly repents and surrenders himself to the world courts, all right? Evangelist walks into a Colombian drug cartel lair all by himself and starts to share the gospel. All right? And the drug cartel guys all become pastors. ISIS terrorist shares how much he loves Jesus with his buddies, and they all become missionaries. Young adult ministers to their lesbian coworker, and she weeps and repents. And 10 years later, she's a homeschooling pastor's wife going all over the country sharing her story. It's crazy, right? It's encouraging, it's unexpected. But uh, that's not actually the punchline. Uh, that's just the first half of the joke. Uh, if Jonah 3 were a joke, here's how it would go, okay? M- missionary goes to Kim Jong-un's palace, confronts him about his tyranny, and Kim repents. Leland goes to a young adult who's been a Christian for 15 years, confronts them about a minor issue in their life, and they decide, God is leading me to a different church, Right? You go to Mark, my gay friend, you look at him in the face and you say, your homosexuality is sending you straight to hell. Mark reads the gospel track, he repents, becomes a believer. Katie the Christian goes to the gospel coalition and she criticizes the guys for their preaching and comes back with her life unchanged. Pagan city gets five words from God and the whole city repents. We have the entire word of God. And we yawn when it's preached. Ouch, right? <laughs> Joke's on us. And if you need help seeing this, I encourage you just to read the whole book of Jonah. Again, Jonah's a prophet. He has the law. He's memorized more of the Bible than you've forgotten. Um, he's seen God be merciful to Israel in his days. He lived in a time when God was being good to Israel in spite of their sin. And yet he hears about God's mercy to others and hates it. And this angry, disobedient man who's never once repented in this whole book comes to a pagan city full of people he hates, and he speaks five words, and they all repent. It's almost funny. And if you need any confirmation that this is how we should interpret this book, we'll just go to Matthew uh, 12, 41. I'll just read it to you. You don't have to go there if you want to. You can. But uh, Matthew 12, 41 is spoken to the scribes and Pharisees who had more of their Bibles memorized than you've probably read this year. Okay? And it says this. Here's what Matthew, here's what Jesus says. He says, the men of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The idea there is that Nineveh had a really terrible prophet who spoke some really rough words, and they repented. And the scribes and Pharisees had their Bibles memorized and had the living God in front of them, inviting them into life. And they refused to repent. And we have all of this recorded in the scriptures. We have it taught to us twice a week. We have people in our lives speaking it to us. 
And what about us? Right, when was the last time something spoken or written in the Word made you weep? When was the last time it wrecked your life? When was the last time something in your life went upside down in response to God and His Word? While we're here, while we're, while we're already offended, okay, I'll just uh, I'll go one step further, okay? When was the last time you tried really hard to be really present before the Word? When was the last time you went to bed early to get up and spend time with God so you could be present there? And heck, while we're there, man, what is up? What is up with two weeks a month church attendance, right? You know? Again, again, and I've been here, and if I wasn't a pastor, I would be there, man. Uh, You kind of walk in. You had a late Saturday night. It was crazy. You walk in at 9, 10, or whatever, Starbucks in hand, barely awake, twice a month, right? If the Ninevites had the Bible, right, they would have rearranged their lives around hearing it. They would, have, they, would have, they would have paused their weekend activities. They would not have gone and seen mom and dad twice a month or whatever, right? They would have rearranged their lives around the word. What about us? Jesus says at the day of judgment, God is not going to be the only one to have something to say about this in our lives. The Ninevites are going to have something to say about it. Isn't that crazy? Jesus is talking about a pagan nation full of murder and lying and corruption rebuking us for our response to God. We've got to ask a question. Why why is Jesus being so offensive here? Why does Jesus say offensive things like this? Like, why does he get all up in our faces? And the, the answer is not that he just wants to condemn us or make us feel bad or try to beat us up into changing, right? Jesus wounds in order to heal, right? God speaks hard, harsh, shocking words to us. So we, we can wake up. You know, if, if we're, we're sleeping, like we're slumbering spiritually, Jesus has an ice bu- a bucket of ice water called Nineveh, okay? And this morning he's just, right? He wants you guys to wake up, to realize that what's normal in the American church, you know? I got my podcast. I get taught twice a week. I have a Bible. But I haven't really responded to it in a long time. What's normal for us is not normal. Jesus wants us to be shocked by this. And he wants to shock us into it first so that we can see him say, look at what I paid for for you. Look at what I died for. Right? Look at at what I paid for with my life for you. You've had my word almost your whole life, and you just kind of toyed with it. And I bled and died for this to rescue you. See the love of Christ this morning. It's easy to walk around thinking you're being mostly obedient right? But you're so dazed when you're hearing the word, you're not responding to it, right? And Jesus says, man, look at your sins. See it afresh and see me. See me inviting you, just like Jonah, into life today in the middle of your mess. If you just come, if you just have, if you just have a lick, just a, just a tiny bit of what the Ninevites had, right? If you just have a little bit of that this morning, man, Christ will fill your life afresh. He will give pour out his mercy upon you. How do we, uh, what do we do? Um, Do we go home, call a fast, mourn, and weep? Maybe, 
you know, maybe. Uh, there was a famous missionary, I think he was in Scotland or England, and uh, he wrote a letter uh, to his mentor, and he was just talking about how, how difficult and hard things were. He said, man, we have tried everything. We tried everything, and these people are, are stone hard. They didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And uh, the mentor sent him a two-word telegram back saying, try tears. Try tears. So uh, if, if the person I just described, hearing the word a lot and doing the word a very little, if that's you, my encouragement this morning would be to try tears. If you are stuck in a pattern of sin that you cannot get out of, if you're just living in it, if you're trying and nothing's working, try tears. You got broken relationships. You've been in a rut for the last five, ten, five, ten years. Haven't seen any growth. Try tears. Try a time of dedicated fasting before the Lord. But um, I don't think that's it. Um, notice uh, in Nineveh, eventually life had to go on. Right? You can't just not eat forever. Right? Life has to go on. They didn't fast for forever. Right? They eventually city life got back to normal. Um, what do you think God required of the Ninevites from this point forward? If you look at uh, verse, uh, verse 8. Second half of the verse, the king of Nineveh says, Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Uh, apparently, um, even without any of the scriptures, this pagan king knew in his heart, he had this revelation in his conscience, that the murder and the violence and the wickedness of Nineveh was a part of the reason God was going to judge them. And so from this point forward, after the fasting, after the weeping, right, what God wanted from Nineveh was just to obey what they knew. Just obey what you know. I'm not asking for perfection. I'm just asking for obedience to the things I've revealed to you. And uh, what I would encourage you guys this morning uh, is today, in one concrete, radical way, much like in Nineveh, one concrete and radical way, obey what you know. Um, most of us know lots of commands in the Bible. We know the command of 1 Thessalonians 4 to let everyone control his own body in holiness and honor when it comes to our sexuality. We know Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for, for those who persecute you, right? We know Jesus says, lay up your treasures in heaven. Give generously, right? And all this passage, I think, requires of you this morning, all right? is simply to take one of those things that you know, that intellectually is here, that's never gotten here or here, right? Take that and obey that thing. That relationship you're in that you know you shouldn't be in, that attitude at work you know you shouldn't have, just take that, whatever it is, that one thing, and radically and concretely obey God there. And then, uh, let me try to get real practical. Um, Craig Harris is a community, community group pastor here at ECBC. He was a missionary in India for, I think, 13, 14 years and came back to the States. And uh, his perspective is really cool being on the field for so long. And uh, the, 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 the church in India is rapidly growing. Uh, you've got guys that come from Hindu backgrounds and a year into their Christian walk, they've already seen, you know, five or ten people converted under their ministry. Um, and, you know, I, I was talking to Craig and uh, just kind of thinking through, like, how does this happen? And he said something really interesting. He said, a typical... Indian Christian may only be aware of 15% of what God requires of them, right? They, they might only have the gospel of Matthew. That's all they have. Right? They have 15% of the word, all right? But 
they're obeying everything they know. They're obeying 15%. He says, in the West, we might know more like 80%, but we're obeying about 12, <laughs> right? So, so the, the idea is just real, it's real simple. In, in India, they get it. Discipleship is obedience-based. Obey what you know. Don't, don't be perfect. Don't, you know. And, and, and I, I'll, I'll just say, I'll back up. Um, it is actually hard to have the whole Bible because this book is so big and intimidating. There's so much here. Your temptation is to think, I've got to know it, right? I've got to know it all. And, and guys, that's difficult. Just wait till, wait till we start Habakkuk in a couple weeks, all right? Knowing it's tough, all right? Um, what I would encourage you is from here on out, Make the primary point of your daily time with the Lord is to have just enough Bible to obey. Okay? If you're reading the Bible through in a year like I am right now, okay, out of all those chapters you're reading in the morning, okay, just take one truth, one verse, and obey it. All right, I've got, uh, right now uh, I'm in Proverbs and Hebrews, and uh, three chapters of Proverbs, guys, that's like, that's like a hundred different Proverbs, right? Trying to just understand that is very difficult. I'll just take one proverb. Be like, okay, how does this adjust my attitude today? Right? Real simple. Right? You want to respond to Jesus? You, you want to stop having this joke being on you all the time that, that the North Korean dictator can respond better than you? Right? Right? You want to, have, you want to stop having that joke play? Right? Um, just from here on out, just take enough of the truth to obey today. So one of my favorite seminary professors tells this story. Uh, he went to Africa um, on a mission trip there, and uh, he got involved in a particular African church that was really struggling, really struggling. And the reason they were really struggling is because no one in the whole church, not even the pastor, had a Bible. Most of them couldn't even read, right? Um, and, of course, you can imagine a church without God's word, how that would go, okay? Uh, the pastor had, like, three or four sermons from other people he would just recycle. No one really knew what they were doing. Uh, anyways, my professor said that he met one guy who seemed to be genuinely wise and godly. And he walks into this guy's house, which is like a, you know, five-by-eight concrete box that he and his entire family lived in. And uh, the entire, every square inch of his walls and ceiling were covered with newspaper clippings and like this random page torn out of a children's book and just all, all, these, all this writing everywhere. And uh, he goes on to find out that because any kind of knowledge was so scarce in their culture, this guy gathered it. He'd see a little newspaper clipping like tumbleweeding in the street. And he'd go and run it, run and grab it, clean it off, and post it and read it over and over again. He said, man, that's, that's a wise guy. He knows the value of knowledge. And I'll just say, we can take a page out of his book today and just value God's word to us. Take a page out of the book of the Ninevites and actually respond to it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I, well, I, just, I just confess, um, with so much of the scriptures in my life, um, I have responded in a very small way to you. And I just, I just pray that you would enliven and uh, enable and help us this morning uh, to not hear another sermon that we don't change from, to not hear another, to not read another passage that doesn't impact us. I just really plead and pray for us and just ask that you would work in our hearts. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.